where's my lunch? I thought I had a lunch up here with me. Have you ever figured that out? Most people, when they take a drink, do not whistle, but it's called wetting your will. I don't understand. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are very blessed to be here together, to, together. And for the fellowship that you grant us together, Father, we thank you. But, but we are here only secondarily to visit with one another. We're here to visit with you and to give you praise that is yours. Oh, our Father, how we ask that you would bless us now. And we ask that you would give us a real sense of your presence here with us this morning. Heavenly Father, we lift up the strategic prayer request to you that we've been lifting up all year and we've been seeing you move and we give you thanks, our Father, for this. Lord, we, we really desire to see at least 50 people come to faith in Christ this year through the witness of our church family and that these people would be baptized and, be, uh, be, and, and grow as disciples. Lord, we, we pray that you'd raise up from within our church family two missionaries or missionary families go out by the end of 2006. Oh, God, begin speaking to people about that. Lord, we, we, we really feel the need to reach out to the world, and we pray that you would use us to do that. Father, thank you for bringing Barbara Escalante to us as a children's minister. We are very blessed to have her. This is an answer to our prayers. But we ask that you would raise up children's ministry, qualified children's ministry volunteers uh, to serve in the children's ministries in Sunday school and children's church the nursery in Awana. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through this service. And we pray, our Father, with thanksgiving for the way that you have provided to the, to the church family and the way that the church family is giving. Oh, God, I praise you and I thank the people for the gifts which have been given. The budget has been met already, Lord. We are blessed. Now we pray that you would continue to provide and glorify yourself further so we'll be able to have uh, the ability to minister in an effective way. Because money is needed for that, Lord. And we pray, our Father, that you would provide abundantly for the challenge of the budget in 2006. And we ask, our Father, as we thank you for the Christian Education Center, and as we look forward to the construction of the office building, Lord, we pray that you would provide so that those building costs could be paid off very swiftly. And we ask our Father that you would give us unity as a church family, continued unity, and that you would be glorified as a result. We thank you, our Father, and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. This must be an important service. Must be. Because I'm not Pastor Matt. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. No, that means that Satan put an attack out on Pastor Matt, and he's got this severe virus cold, the creeping crud that's gotten so many of us. And uh, so he called me on Friday, and 
asked me to sit in for him, and I was more than willing to do that. Praise God. Um, and I know it must be an important service because did you enjoy the worship this morning? The singing, did you enjoy that? If you, this is a Baptist church. We respond in certain ways. If you believe that it was really good this morning, you're supposed to say, amen. yes, but you don't say a tepid sort of a, an amen. You say amen like you're Southern Baptist, even though we're not Southern Baptist, and you say it very strong. Amen? Amen, amen. that's right, because we're, we, we were blessed this morning. But did you realize Satan's attacks? Did you see that, that, that the beautiful piano playing that was done was done from this old piano over here? Because the brand new piano that is over on the far side by the wall died this morning. <laughs> it is going back. But that, it, it, it did that twice. It, 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 so I, clearly we are under major attack. And who knows? Maybe I will dissolve into a puddle before you, but, but God has got his plans for us this morning. We are very blessed. I actually asked on Friday, I called Tom and asked Tom to, uh, to put together Mary Did You Know? And that doesn't just happen. So Tom got together with Joyce and they put it together and I praise God. Wasn't that wonderful? That was really good. Um, that music just kept going through my mind over and over and over again as I was preparing for this morning. And, and uh, it's very appropriate. What did Mary know? Well, it turns out she knew quite a bit. She knew that she would give birth to Jesus, the Messiah, according to what the passage we're going to look at today, Luke 1, 26 to 38. She knew that her cousin Elizabeth greeted her as the mother of my Lord in Luke 1.43. She knew that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Uh, she remembered all these things when the shepherds came and told her about, about the, that they had been given an angelic message about the birth of a special baby, God's provision. She pondered on that. She remembered it. She treasured it up. Uh, she observed the worship of her son by the Magi and the valuable gifts that they, they gave to her son in Matthew 2.11. She saw and heard and was amazed at what Simeon in the temple did. He took up the baby Jesus in his arms and he said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. And he saw a baby, more than just a baby, he saw salvation. In Luke 2, 28-30, she heard Simeon's blessing and the warning that he gave that a sword was going to pierce her soul. She knew that too. She heard Anna's thanks to God and her prophesying in the temple, Luke 2, 38. She observed how Jesus, at age 12, engaged the teachers in the temple and responded to his parents' concern that he had to be in my father's house. She remembered that. She treasured all these things in her heart, according to Luke 2.51. At the wedding in Cana, she told Jesus the wine had run out. Now that's an unusual thing. He wasn't responsible for the feast. It wasn't his, he wasn't responsible for the wine running out, and he certainly wasn't going to go out and buy a pack of wine for them. No, she had another thing in mind. 
I, I kind of think of the passage in John chapter 2 about the wedding in Cana. I kind of think about it as the movie Superman. Now, go with me for a minute. Um, I think about it as the early part of the movie when the baby super, Superman is sent to uh, our world and uh, his parents, those who adopt him, uh, take him on. And uh, in the movie, he lifts up the car so that they can change the tire. And there's this sense that the family knows, they're in on the secret, that, that uh, their son is, uh, has got superpowers. But they don't let everybody know about it. It's like a family secret. And I get the sense, I get the sense that that was the way it was in the family of Jesus. Mary knew. So when she said to him, hey, they ran out of wine, implication, what are you going to do about it? And he says to her, it's not yet my time, woman. Back off. And then he goes ahead, and she tells them, she tells the servants, fill up those containers with water. And then she walks away, and he does his thing, and they've got the best wine ever. Mary knew. She knew about his abilities. Um, she knew that uh, because she stood by the cross while her son was being executed, John 19, verses 25 to 27. Yes, I agree. Um, and she was with the apostles praying while they awaited the promised gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. So what did Mary know? She knew a great deal. Now, I personally think that that song was written with the idea that either Mary was pregnant or maybe right after the birth of her son. Mary, did you know? Well, she certainly would have remembered what the angel Gabriel announced to her and the commitment she made that day. And we read about it in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, please. And I'd like you to pull out the uh, notes, the miniaturized notes that are in your bulletin. When I made those notes... I made them Saturday. They were a full-size sheet, and I made it in such a way that if you have a normal penmanship, you would be able to write everything you needed to write in the blanks. But the marvels of technology, we were able to get it onto half-sheet size. But, but that shrinks everything, including the blanks, so write small. The big idea. The big idea is that Mary gave herself to God as a servant, to bear and to give birth to the Messiah. This Christmas, give yourself as a servant to God. Mary gave, her, gave herself to God as a servant, to bear and to give birth to the Messiah. This Christmas, give yourself as a servant to to God. Now the context of this passage is that an angel of the Lord told the priest Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son, Luke 1.17. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children 
and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John was going to prepare a people who were looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Luke 124. And after these things, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, that came about as a result of an interview that Zacharias had with an angel of the Lord. Now another uh, interview takes place, and here we have a name for the angel, and that's Gabriel. And it's another message about a baby that would be born. Mary gave herself to God as a servant as a result, to bear and to give birth to the Messiah this Christmas. This Christmas, give yourself as a servant to God. Okay, Mary and Gabriel. Mary and Gabriel. The setting, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Um, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's unlikely pregnancy. Luke 1.7 says, And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. These were older people. Luke 1.18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is an emphasized concept. This was, in some ways, a miraculous birth, but nothing compared to what was about to take place. Gabriel went to Galilee, to Nazareth. If anyone wishes to be rich, let him go north. If he wants to be wise, let him come south, said the rabbis, according to Alfred Ersheim. In the north, there was farming and there was a fish industry by the Sea of Galilee. In the south, there was the temple, the priests, the Pharisees. The north, as a result, was looked down upon. It was considered a place that, uh, that was not as spiritual. I'm sorry I didn't say that right. Let me say it again. Spiritual. It wasn't spiritual. Like Jerusalem was. Now, Gabriel went to Galilee, came to Nazareth, and uh, in Nazareth, Nazareth was close, was close to a Roman garrison, to the headquarters for the area. And it, it's been described as a military camp town full of vice and corruption. In my own mind's eye, I kind of think of it as Oceanside. <laughs> you know, a camp town. And, you know, like airports, and, uh, and camp towns like Oceanside, there's a certain amount of, of vice that's available. I don't know why that is, but it's true. And as a result, Nazareth was it wasn't considered very highly. John 1.46, and Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He almost said that with a sneer in his voice. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. You know, it was not the most highly regarded part of Israel, but it was where Jesus would grow up. Situation. 
He was born to a, he came to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. She was a virgin. She had never been intimate with a man. She was engaged. She was engaged. That's, str that's a stronger bond than engagement means today. It means that they were actually, even though they were only engaged and had not come together, they were legally married. If, uh, if there was immorality on the part of either the man or the woman with somebody else, that was considered adultery because they had been married. Uh, in, in the eyes of the law, they were married. Um, the death of the man would mean that the woman would be considered a widow and would even qualify for leveret marriage where other family members would take her on. Um, breaking the engagement required a legal divorce. Legal papers had to be served. Um, and they were, during this time, could be a number of months, they were separated from one another. So there was no nonsense going on. And if, if a pregnancy resulted, it was clear somebody else was involved. And Joseph was a descendant, a descendant of David. A descendant of David. Psalm 132, 11, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. And in my view, the genealogy that is found of Jesus, the genealogy that is found in Luke 33, 23 to 38, is Mary's genealogy. Joseph's is given to us in Matthew chapter 1. That's the legal genealogy. He was the father. But the mother, she was the physical link. And I believe that's found in Luke 3, 23 to 38. Big idea is that Mary gave herself to God as a servant to bear and to give birth to the Messiah. This Christmas, give yourself as a servant to God. Okay, we have the angelic pronouncement in verses 28 to 33. First, we have a greeting of grace in verses 28 to 30. Verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one! The Lord is with you. Now the greeting is very simple. Hail is the common way of greeting somebody. Kyra means uh, rejoice. Um, and then he said, uh, favored one. This is a word which is based on the word grace. It means that you've been given grace, one who has been given grace. And then he said, the Lord with you. That's the original, the Lord with you. And it means either that you are in a place of blessing, the Lord is with you, or it's a blessing that the angel gave her, um, may the Lord be with you. Um, verse 29, Mary's response was troubling, but she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. Mary was greatly troubled, confused, perplexed by what was said by the angel. And she kept trying to figure out what it meant. She was considering, she was pondering, she was reasoning. So this word is sometimes used in, uh, in, in the idea of debate or of discussion. Uh, it's used 
about arguing. And you can almost see that, that she's arguing with herself. Did he say what he said? Did I understand him correctly? Did he say I was a favored one? I don't feel like a favored one. What was it about him? What, what was it about me that made him say, you know, she's just going back and forth. She's trying to figure out what it was that, that he was saying. Most people, when they're in the presence of an angel, angels are hugely powerful spiritual beings. And when they appear, when they make themselves, when they make us aware of their presence, usually people, almost universally, they fall to the floor and grovel, hoping that they will not be destroyed. That's the normal response to an angel. But Mary's not that way. She's standing there and she's trying to figure out what in the world's going on here. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. That's the normal response of of angels because they expect for people to be afraid. But she's confused, perplexed. For you have found favor with God. Uh, The word for fear here is phobu, from which we get phobia. It's fear. Um, But but he says, you found favor, you found grace, literally, grace, charis. You found grace, unmerited favor with God. You've been given a special honor from God. And then he gives her a prophecy of an extraordinary birth. An extraordinary birth. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You will name him, Jesus is a variation on Joshua. Uh, uh, a Hebrew rendering would be Yeshua. It means the Lord is salvation. Now normally, when a woman is given a message, hey, you're going to be pregnant, that would be a reason for rejoicing. But Mary's been nowhere near Joseph. If she becomes pregnant, it marks her as being an adulterous woman. So she's not all excited about it. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Five things are said in verses 32 and 33. Five things, predictions are made about the baby. He'll be great. You know, this is something that every mother wants to know about their child. For Jewish mothers particularly, what is it they want to know about their son? My son, the doctor. My son, the doctor. He's great. He makes lots of money. I'm taking well good care of. It's a good thing. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a matter of knowing that your, your child is going to be successful. If you have a daughter, you want her to marry well. Marry a doctor. If you have a son, you want him to be a doctor or a lawyer, prosperous. This is what they want them to be. He will be great. What a blessing. He will be the Son of the Most High. What? He will be the Son of the Most High. Now, Son of something means to have the qualities of the Father. 
to be the son of wickedness, as we find in Psalm 89.22. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. That means the wicked will not afflict him. Those who are, are imbued with a character of wickedness because they are sons of wickedness. So to be a son of God meant to be God the son. It meant that you shared the character trait of being God. And then he will be given David's throne, the kingdom, David's throne. 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And, and eternal, an ongoing individual is going to have to sit on the throne. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. His reign, will, he will reign forever the millennium through eternity. The kingdom, it'll be a kingdom with no end. The big idea here is that Mary gave herself to God as a servant to bear and to give birth to the Messiah. This Christmas, give yourself as a servant to God. All right, now we have confusion Assurance and assent in verses 34 to 38. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Wait a minute, I got all the pieces you gave me and they're not coming together. One and one is not making two. I'm a virgin. I cannot possibly give birth to a child. I'm nowhere near Joseph. How can I be the person who will be, the person that you say is going to have this birth. That's not, that's not a matter of doubt. That's a matter of confusion. She's seeking an explanation because she is a virgin, a woman who has never had a relationship with a man in such a way that it would lead to the birth of a child. Um, we read in, in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Another uh, a name for Jesus that describes his character. He is God. But Mary's not focusing on Isaiah 7.14. She's focusing on the fact that she's a virgin. I got something from a, a sermon of John MacArthur's that I found online or a Bible study. He said this, over 10 years ago, Red Book Magazine took a poll of students in Protestant seminaries. These are future pastors, Protestant seminaries. 56% of those students studying for the ministry rejected the idea of the virgin birth. Fully, 56%. He says that's the legacy of modern liberalism. A survey was done by the University of California at Berkeley, polled the denominations to get their view on the, on the virgin birth. 69% of American Baptists denied, excuse me, 69% believed in the virgin birth, 
66% of Lutherans believed in the, in the virgin birth, 57% of United Presbyterians, 39% of Episcopalians, 34% of Methodists, and 21% of Congregationalists believed in the virgin birth. If the liberal church is not even ready to accept the deity of Jesus Christ and his virgin birth, it seems rather obvious that the world wouldn't be beating a path to embrace this truth, a, a path to their door to embrace this truth either. I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? And so the angel gives her assurance, verse 35. And the angel answered and said, by the way, we believe in the virgin birth. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Mary was a virgin. There's no question about how it was that, uh, that Mary was impregnated, and we're going to see it here in verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit would cause the conception. The Holy Spirit would cause the conception. Are you following the notes? Is there enough room to write that? I hope so. I'm sorry about that. The Holy Spirit will cause the conception. So therefore, literally, the baby would have the nature of the Father. He would be God. He would literally be the Son of God and be so named. Uh, I, I find it a little bit disturbing that in verse 35, it says that he shall be called the Son of God. Like maybe, well, he's not really the Son of God, but they'll call him that. No, to say he will be called something is simply a way of saying that someone is named that. Luke 1.60 in the same chapter, and his mother, Elizabeth, answered and said, No, indeed, but his name shall be called John. In the naming of the child called John, called that name. Uh, verse 61, and they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. It's just the word call is used in the naming process. Verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. A sign has been given it seemed impossible that Elizabeth would be able to bear a son, but she's in her sixth month. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I don't know, I don't know if you're in the habit of marking your Bible. My first Bible was a Schofield Bible. I received Christ in 1969. I read through that Bible, King James, I love it, it has great rhythm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's lyrical, but um, in, uh, in the 1970s, my whole church turned over, 1975, turned over to the New American Standard. It was new then, Hal Lindsey recommended it. He was part of our church, so Hal, uh, Hal Lindsey said to do it, so the elder board went ahead and did it. All the church pews became New American Standards, and uh, I went ahead and bought myself a New American Standard. And um, I had never marked in my Schofield because I almost thought of it as being, well, it's God's word. You know, I held it in high respect. 
But I had gone through college. I graduated from UCLA in 1975. And all the books that I had had to read, I used a highlighter in to help me to highlight the things that were important. So I started highlighting my Bibles. And you can tell the, the Bibles that I had, they're New England Standards uh, from 1975 on. And yeah, they had some highlighting. I would highlight the verses that were really important. Then I got to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Whoa, they're all important verses. So I started highlighting every verse in the Bible. <laughs> this is a Bible that I don't use anymore. This is the one that I used to preach from in Missouri when I was a pastor there. You see, it's all yellow. <laughs> this takes away the reason why you highlight things. You highlight things to make them stand out. If they're all yellow, it doesn't work. So the next time I read through the Bible and I used the same one, I would uh, use my highlighter, but everything was highlighted. I couldn't use it to highlight the verses. So I would use it to make stars in the side margin. And, you know, highlighters are kind of heavy, thick. It's hard to do. So I put one star. That was an important verse. Two stars. Ooh, I squeezed them in. That must be a really important. Three stars. Oh, I kind of crowd them around each other. Next time I read through the Bible, I couldn't use a highlighter to put stars. So I took my pen, blue ink, black ink, whatever I had in hand, and I would put stars. One star, good. Two stars, pretty good. Three stars. Yeah, that's a verse I'll be able to find if ever I need it when I need it. Four stars. Ooh, really important verse. Five stars. This is a verse which should be committed to memory or... It should be known. It's always a verse that I want to know. Next time I read through the Bible, I was stars all over the pages. It's all highlighted. So I started writing, drawing boxes around the stars, just something to let me know that I'd read through them. This Bible doesn't have all the stars. That was another Bible, although it has some of the, I see, has stars that are in highlighter. Um, what is all that? Why am I even, what am I, I'm saying that you should be marking your Bible. I'm telling you, mark your Bible. If there's a verse that's a question mark, you don't, you don't know what that verse means. Put a little question mark in the side margin so that you'll know to go back to that verse later on and give it some more study. If it's important, give it a star or two or whatever, exclamation points or whatever, something that is useful. Oh, why am I bringing this to your attention? Because of verse 37. It says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That verse is worthy of no less than four stars. I think it's probably a five-star verse. You could do that real easily. There are pens available in the, in the chair back before you. This is a great verse. In fact, I'm going to read it again. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? We're Baptists. Do you believe that? Amen. Yes, you do. In fact, read it with me. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
nothing will be impossible with God. This is why we pray. Why do you pray? Well, you pray because a pastor has told you to pray. A preacher has said on the radio, on TV, in a church, you heard it somewhere, maybe it was Sunday school, you ought to pray. Why do we pray? We pray because God is the one who can make things happen. When we pray, do we only pray about things that aren't going to happen anyway? Do you often pray for the sun to come up next morning? You don't pray for that. You know why? The sun is going to come up in the morning. What you want to pray for are things that are meaningful for you and you want to have happen. If you're in school, you want good grades. You pray for good grades. God from heaven says, study! I'll bring the things to mind. But you know, we pray for that. A lot of praying goes on during finals, I understand. Um, we pray for things when we're sick. We pray for health and for healing. When, we're, when, we're, uh, when, we're, when we've got uh, relationships that are ailing, or a marriage that is on the rocks, or we know about somebody else that's close to us that has a marriage that's on the rocks, we pray about it, don't we? God, heal that marriage. God, cause them to confess their sin to one another and, and, to, uh, and to forgive one another. God, reconcile them. Isn't that what we do? If you're not doing it, you ought to do it. We, ought, we pray for paying off debt. A mountain of debt is nothing to God. We pray for God to pay, help us to pay off the debt. We ask God to bless us as we seek to buy a home. Uh, we, uh, we ask God to save the people around us. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You pray for people to be saved. If you pray for someone to get saved, just one person, or five, or ten, if you pray for somebody to get saved, I want you to nod your head up and down. Okay, why do you do that? Oh, I'm sorry. Don't you believe in free choice, man's free will? Then why do you pray to God that, they're, that they'll be saved? I'll tell you why. Because God is the one who moves hearts. People receive Christ because the Spirit moves them to receive Christ. I don't know why everybody doesn't get saved. I don't know why. Because if God wanted to save everybody, everybody would be saved. But that's not his plan. I don't get it. He's chosen some and not others. That's Ephesians chapter 1. But I pray for people to be saved because I, got, I want God to move them to believe. I want God to use whatever means. I want God to bring witnesses. I'll pray for God to bring witnesses into their lives. I'll pray for God to bring circumstances into their lives to make them want to receive Christ. I'll ask God to move them to believe. Do you remember before you became a believer in Jesus Christ as Savior? Do you remember what, what you were like? Oh, you were just about ready to receive Christ. Oh man, if I could just receive Christ, it would be the greatest thing. Maybe I'll try it today. Uh, not today, maybe tomorrow. Was that the way you were before you received Christ? That wasn't the way I was before I received Christ. I had a friend, Ken, who was 
my best friend in school. He was a believer and I was not. I constantly, I threw evolution in his face over and over and over again. I'm like a lot of kids. When I was young, I was into dinosaurs. Your kids into dinosaurs? And I just threw evolution all over him. I tormented him no end. The only way he got me to church was because of a girl that I wanted to meet. I didn't go to church to meet Jesus. I went to church to meet Dale. But God got me in the end. Because God's the one who moves our hearts. We need to pray for God to bring people to faith in Christ. People that are meaningful to you. I want you to turn to God because nothing is impossible with God, said the angel Gabriel to, to the mother of our Lord Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Commit five minutes a day to prayer with God. That's a start. I tell you, you give him five minutes in prayer and you start to see things happen. You will get hooked. I would write things down uh, or type them into a, a file on your computer about things that you asked God to do and how he answered them when he answers. That makes for great reading later on. I, I still have the notebook in which I wrote prayers the time that I met Geneva. I was in seminary and I thought it was really cool to write with a pen that was used for calligraphy. You know, I had a broad stroke and it gave, the, gave my handwriting, it looked better than it ever looked before. It was crazy, it looked kind of effeminate. I'm kind of embarrassed about it now. But, but when I go back and look at that faded notebook, I look at all the prayers that I prayed. I prayed feverishly for Geneva to come, come around. You don't understand. There were, I, I was at Dallas Seminary, and it was an all-male campus. It was an all-male student body. There was not a woman amongst us. So the, the single young female secretaries on campus were at a premium. And there were guys lined up around the block. Well, not quite that much, but, but Geneva had guys because she was the most eligible young lady on campus. No lie, it was true. And um, I, I was praying feverishly. God, swat these guys aside. <laughs> just just let, it, let it be, Lord. It calm my heart so that I don't freak out whenever I see it with somebody else. You know, I mean, writing down your prayers... Good idea to do. Writing down the fulfillment, good idea to do. Um, lift up the strategic prayer requests. We pray for them earlier. Do that daily. Sign up with Mitzi Neverman to be on the prayer chain so that you can get prayer requests either sent to you by email or, or over the phone. Pray on the spot. This is a habit that I have. I try to put into play every time I'm at church or whenever, wherever I am. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say to you, uh, I've got this real burden. Uh, my, uh, I hear about this every once in a while. Um, my job is a mess. Or, you know, I'm between jobs right now. Could you pray, please, that God would lead me to the right job? God would open the doors for me? 
And I used to say to people what is commonly said, oh man, I'll pray for that. Yes, I'll be glad to pray for that. That's what I want to do. You need that prayer, I'll pray for you. And of course, if it's not written down, what happens? I forget about it. I suffered all kinds of guilt for forgetting to pray about things. Because the next time I'd see that person, I'd think, oh man, I was supposed to pray for that person. What was I supposed to pray? Um, my solution for that was not a pencil and paper because I can't usually carry those around. What I usually do, if I think about it, is when somebody brings a request to my attention, I'll say, let's pray about it right now. Sit down on this chair so we can be eye to eye. Let's pray. And you'll see me praying with people in this very room. I tell you, there are corners that are perfect for prayer throughout this room. Who cares what other people are around you? You don't have to pray out loud, real, you know, top of your voice. Just pray with somebody else. Get your heads close together so you can hear one another. But do pray. Because God answers prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Um, one of the brothers in this church family was tormented by not seeing prayers answered. And so he would torment me with the fact that he was not seeing prayers answered. And I would say to him, yes, God's answering prayer, but he just didn't see it. I've been praying for him. I've been praying for him for years. You know what? He's seeing answered prayer. I think God was answering prayer all along, but sometimes we just need to be able to see it. When you start praying, you will see answered prayer. And God will move in you and others around you. Okay, the last verse. Mary's response. And Mary said in verse 38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the Lord's slave. Literally, the word is slave. New American Standard is translated as bond slave because bond slave means uh, someone who is voluntarily a slave. Someone who chooses to be a slave. And that's indeed what Mary is doing here. She's offering herself to the Lord. I submit to his will. God wants to use me as a surrogate to carry his child. May it be done to me. I submit to his will. And the angel left. Oh, Mary gave herself to God as a servant to bear and to give birth to the Messiah. This Christmas, Give yourself as a servant to God. The conclusion. Are you willing to give yourself over to God to do his work? All right, I put up this illustration to a vote uh, in the first service because I wasn't sure how people would respond to it. It's an old illustration. But they liked it, so I'm going to impose it upon you too, okay? Ben Putnoff was a member of the Lord's Church. Morally, he was a good man. He didn't lie, curse, drink. He didn't beat his wife, didn't smoke. 
He paid his income tax, came to Bible class and to worship services, paid his bills, gave a few bucks to the Lord. He never opposed anything uh, that was good. One day, old Ben, putting it off, um, died. And he stood before the righteous judge. And the judge said, Ben, you are charged with trying to close the church. Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, Lord. I didn't do a thing. Guilty is charged, said the judge. And he clanged down the gavel. Then he continued, Ben, you have confessed to the most effective way ever devised of closing the church. You didn't do a thing. You didn't, you didn't visit the sick. You didn't encourage the weak. You didn't feed the hungry. You didn't reach out to the lost with the gospel. But judge, Ben pleaded, I intended to do all those things, but I was too busy making a living and enjoying myself. I have just been putting it off. Don't put it off. Offer yourself to the Lord as a servant. Offer yourself for ministry in our church family. It's a perfect place to be able to do it. Offer yourself for children's ministries. Get fingerprinted. Take training. Do what you need to do in order to be able to serve in the Sunday school. See Barbara Escalante. Uh, in children's church, again, see Barbara Escalante. In Awana, see Noel Trout. Or perhaps you could lead or host a home fellowship. See Pastor Matt. Or you could, if you're not part of a home fellowship, get involved in a home fellowship. Again, see Pastor Matt. Make yourself available to clean or fix in the homes of those who have need. Until the end of the year, see Greg Kruger. Um, if uh, if uh, you want to fix meals for those who have been ill, again, you can see Greg. Um, uh, if you want to serve in the nursery, see Linda Scow. Etc., etc., etc. What line is that from? What, what movie is that? King and I, yeah. The King and I, the King of Siam said that. I've always loved that, the, the look and the sound. Etc., etc., etc. There's more to do in the church. Don't stop looking around for things to do. You've got some gifts and abilities that can be matched up with the ministry. Offer yourself to the Lord. Remember, God won't ask you to do something that he won't empower, enable, and provide for you to do. Nothing is impossible with God. And then I would say accept. God sent his son to be your savior. He was born and we celebrated on Christmas. He died on the cross, and we recognize that on Good Friday. He rose from the dead, rose from the grave. We celebrate that on Easter. I agree. Celebrate. Have you transferred your trust to Jesus as your Savior yet? You can do it today. Make this the most wonderful Christmas that you've ever had. We're going to pray. But I want to take a moment and suggest something to you. 
If you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, what do you do when we, when somebody, when a preacher lifts up an opportunity for people to receive Jesus Christ as Savior in prayer? You pray. You don't receive Christ all over again. You pray for people around you that you know need to receive Christ. If there's not somebody around you who needs to receive Christ, pray that God would open the heart of someone who needs to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior who's in this room. If you don't know about that, you can pray for somebody that you know needs to receive Christ, a family member or a friend. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want people to open their hearts right now. If you need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, it's as simple as, as expressing yourself to God in prayer. Just in your own heart, follow me. Oh God, I am a sinner. I cannot be good enough to enter heaven. But you sent Jesus to die in my place to pay for my sins. Jesus, be my Savior. Save me. Thank you. Father, I ask that you would open their heart and cause them to realize all the wonders that you've given them and that they would reach out to learn more about Jesus. Father, I ask that you would bless these folks here assembled today. I ask that you would use them to lead other people to faith in Christ, to use them to reach out to you and to ask for you to change things through their prayers. And I ask that you would show them answers to prayer. Maybe not exactly what they asked for, but you're moving in very clear ways. And I pray that you would be glorified as a result and that we would be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. I think we are dismissed.